Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline today, joined by Dr. Graham Snyder. And um, we're sitting here right now, a couple hundred miles apart. In fact, we probably could have done it in person if we waited a few hours as I about head to North Carolina. But we're, caught, we're going to talk about, um, about ED violence. And, you know, all of us have dealt with it one way or the other. Of course, the behavioral health crisis as well. Um, and the challenges we face with growing wait times and, and getting available beds and uh, basically becoming residents of the emergency department. And on top of that, um, you know, this idea that we put in a metal detector and all of a sudden all violence and things go away. And so we're gonna bounce on a lot of that. Uh, a lot of this was sent to me uh, by a, regarding an article uh, that Dr. Snyder wrote. And then, um, and so I thought, man, we gotta get him here on the podcast. And uh, here we are. So first and foremost, give us a little background on yourself. So I'm an emergency physician in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. I work um, for and with uh, an independent group called Wake Emergency Physicians. And we see around half a million patients a year between, between all of our partners. Um, I've been very interested in emergency department violence for quite a long time. Um, one, because we see so much of it and it was really brought to a head for me with watching the, the strangulation of George Floyd. What hit me while watching it is not that I was ever concerned that anything like that would happen at our hospital, but that something like that could happen by mistake, um, where violence is so hard to control and so unpredictable that I started focusing on it from a safety perspective for patients. You can imagine though, working with police and working with physicians and working on the problem that the safety of the providers became a, a big focus for me. And then unfortunately I was, I was strangled myself uh, in the emergency department by a patient, which was fairly horrifying, but it really started to beg the question, not, not so much how do I protect myself from it, but what changes in the system could happen that could stop it from even starting in the first place. So that breaks, that, that really rolls into an important aspect of this. And that being that when you open up this box, it, it is a Pandora's box because it's not a simple one switch solution, or we would have already done it. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, that adding security, I mentioned metal detectors is kind of a little thing earlier. Um, you know, there's all these little shows of, um, of planning that I thought maybe that's going to solve the problem, but it really is Pandora's box and you open it up and it is, it is such a big and challenging, uh, issue. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that this is um, that ED violence and violence around the hospital setting is a lot more than, you know, just saying the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time. Yeah, that's, that's so true. The, if you, if you, you think of the emergency department, maybe I shouldn't, but I, I think of it as, as a cauldron. Sometimes it's a, a pressure cooker. Um, people are in pain, uh, that causes violence. It is noisy that causes violence. Um, People are scared. That causes violence. People are embarrassed and vulnerable. And if they're there with their loved ones, sometimes they have a, a sense of permission. We, um, 
we talk about, you know, advising parents, parents are supposed to fight for the kids. You're supposed to fight for your health. You're supposed to fight for survival. And those are kind of idioms, but at the same time, you think, man, something's going wrong. I need to fight. And, and we get the brunt of that sometimes. It's, I, I, you know, the pressure point of emergency medicine, the idea that it is, especially for everybody there, it's such a, it's, it's such just, it's a, you know, it's, a spark ready to, for each person, a fire. And, and, you know, for us, it's our job. You know, we're in there uh, and we understand the stresses. We understand a lot of those things. But, you know, being on the other side with, as a patient or as family, you understand that, you know, the fear, um, the, the thought about, you know, you're not considering an entire department of 20, 30, 50, 60, 100 people. You're thinking about yourself or that family member that's there and, and, and advocating. So it very much is kind of getting into that brainstem fight or flight response. Um, so let's talk about how and why, you know, this isn't something that we can just easily fix. As you talked about before we started with some of the discussions that you've had, you know, with law enforcement and legal, you know, how, why is this, it probably seems obvious to most people listening, but why, why is this not just an easy issue that says, you know, like at the airport, we're going through TSA, zero tolerance, you know, you, you screw up, we're going to throw you out of the plane, United may beat the living crap out of you whatever happens, but you know, it, it's where it's, they simply say it's not tolerated. And I see that posted on online on occasion of, I wish these signs were in the emergency department on zero tolerance. Why is it in our setting going to be a lot more challenging to address than simply putting up a sign? To eliminate emergency department violence, I would say is nearly impossible. Um, but that's not to say that we can't make it worse. And if you can make something worse, then you can make it better. Uh, I think about the um, the the when I was strangled. What what ha- what happened was a person was a, a concerned citizen called the police because they saw a person who was uh, passed out laying on a sidewalk, and the uh, paramedics were called and checked on them, and they were very drunk with a uh, with a concoction of different uh, stimulants, methamphetamine, alcohol, et cetera. The patient, they woke the patient up and said, hey, come with us. And they didn't want to go. And we're, you know, not violent, but not cooperative either. And so the I guess they had a choice. They could say, oh, well, you can sleep it off right here. But that didn't feel right. And they would feel some legal vulnerability and even 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 maybe moral vulnerability for doing that. And so you think, oh, maybe they call alcohol treatment person who would come or maybe a, a social worker who would come and help them out. But that doesn't exist uh, in, in the United States right now. Instead, they call the police and police come and police are very helpful and pick them up and we're going to force you to go put them in the ambulance, comes to the ambulance, comes to the emergency department sleeps for a while, gets in a little tussle with the police, threatens to kill the police. And because, hey, you know, you touch me, I'm going to kill you. And then that's a kind of a homicidal. Well, maybe that's a mental illness. So then the person gets uh, gets uh, involuntarily held to be cleared by psychiatrist. Time goes by. They get more, they get more and more agitated. They want to leave. There's not, there's not psychiatrists that can just come immediately. And sometimes in, in our state, sometimes it can be 12 and a half days. Actually, on average, it's 12 and a half days before you can get a psychiatric admission bed. 
during that time, the agitation gets worse and worse and worse. And for all the best of intentions, we're also holding a person against their will who does have a problem with substance abuse, does have some degree of mental illness, but keeping them there led to the violence when in all likelihood it wouldn't have happened if we were able to just let them go home. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the mental health crisis in this country. Um, as the emergency department continues to grow being the safety net for our system, one of the areas where it has truly uncovered some of the weaknesses of the, uh, of the support services is mental health, behavioral health. You know, we're, we're pretty fortunate here in Lexington that we may, that may be, you know, 24 hours or so. But when we're hearing stories from around the country of especially pediatric and adolescent behavioral health that are spending days, if not weeks or months, maybe not last update I had from a friend of mine from down in Alabama was one there for, um, for over three months so far. And that clock was still running at that point. You mentioned uh, the 12 and a half days for North Carolina. And that really is just putting them in this crucible, this, this hotbed, because everybody knows that the emergency department is not quiet. It's not where you get rest. It's not where you stabilize where, when, you're, um, when you're already on edge and paranoid and, um, or agitated or withdrawing or whatever it may be uh, that, is, that is putting you in that, in that position. Um, let's talk about that idea that as the safety net and as this holding where it's become acceptable that our behavioral health patients are spending that much time in the emergency department and as such increasing the risk to the patient and the staff. I remember when um, when that that slogan that you would hear sometimes said of of defund the police was was said, and it was based around, uh, I assume, uh, bad interactions with 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 the police and sometimes mentally health patients. It's not what what we did was we defunded the mental health care system and said. Now, police, you're in charge of it. And the police who are experts at the management of, of, of criminal and violent behavior, they are not psychiatrists. They are not psychologists. They are not social workers. And we didn't, there's, there's no need to defund the police. We never needed to defund the mental health care system in the first place. It is something that, you know, the, the number, one of the very few areas of medicine where we have significantly fewer beds now than we did uh, 30, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and it, it's just an unfortunate fact, too, that it's, it's not a sexy area of medicine. It's not a place where you go and you have a, you know, have a, have a, have a big gala uh, to raise a bunch of funds. You don't, uh, you don't have folks that are going out there and, and saying, wow, look at our fancy new a behavioral health hospital. Um, and just like anything pediatric, you know, the pe- pediatric or the young folks, our children are one of the most, are the most valuable things in our lives. And yet we don't, we don't put our money where our mouth is. I mean, that's pediatrics in general. It's the only area of medicine where the more training you get, the less you get paid for it. Um, minus a couple of things, but the vast majority, yeah. Um, so, you know, at, for us as emergency physicians, that many listening to this may be on their way to shift, may just be done with a shift. Um, you know, just coming back from a shift last night, working into the middle of the night uh, with patients with, you know, sitters in, you know, uh, throughout the emergency department um, with patients that were yelling and agitated and 
code white and whatever it may be. How do we move forward with this in, in a system where we seem to be going the wrong direction? Oh boy. When, when they put me in charge, <laughs> um, what, what I would do um, is base the treatment of mentally ill, mentally Ill patients, um, base it on, on science and truth and, and what we know and compassionate care. That means number one, if a patient needs inpatient uh, treatment for a mental illness and they are amenable to it, or they are at such an extreme risk that, that, I, that I feel there's a high likelihood of imminent harm, then we would create those beds for them. We would, we would put, our, put our money where, where our complaint is. Um, we would not shut down mental health hospitals. We would build mental hospitals. We would not defund the police. We would fund social, social work departments. There will be, there would be a, there would be a therapy response to mental health crisis as opposed to uh, a management of a criminal response. The thing that I would really, really want to do is not make things worse. One of the most disturbing research papers that I came across during, um, during the writing of this article was about how the psychological damage to a patient of involuntarily committing them can often, and maybe more times than it saves them, cause suicide. At first to me, that sounded ridiculous, but then I thought it a lot, a little bit more. Suicidal ideation is very common. Um, a, millions of Americans think about suicide every year. In some studies, a third of residents will contemplate suicide during their residency. Now, that, that's sad, but the good news is the number that actually go on to complete it is less than 1%. However, if I take a person who maybe has some suicide, oh yeah, I've thought about killing myself. I've thought about it. And then, oh, well, in that case, I'm holding you in this emergency department against your will for the next 12 and a half days. And if you want to leave, you can't. And if you try to run, we will tackle you. And if you try to fight, we will fight better than you. It's, it's humiliating. And I can see how a person like that would, number one, never talk honestly with a psychiatrist again. And number two, might look for a permanent escape. I don't want to make things worse. And if you do say, oh, well, I know that that makes them worse. This person's got passive suicidal ideation. I'm going to let them go home. And then they're one of that less than 1%. There are teams of lawyers lined up to, to punish you for that. And also the, the, the public will often not understand and the press may have a heyday with you for being the one who sent that mentally held patient home instead of caring for them. Even though if that were your policy for most patients, you would end up helping more than you harmed. You're absolutely right, because you look we all look back at those stories, you know, of the patient that you know was, you know, pushed out of the emergency department or wherever, and you know, the the public and the, the press with a little bit of the story runs with it. Next thing you know, policies change that are actually more harmful. And I've got to give you credit 
for the quote and quotable there of, of taking my quote and put the, the money where the complaint is. Well done. Um, but it is, it is true. I mean, one of the local hospitals here with the wait for adolescent and pediatric psych beds is admitting patients to the hospital to get them in a quieter setting where they can start to get some stabilizing care um, you know, while they're waiting for bed availability. But you know, if you think about the fact that, let's talk about STEMI. We have this 90-minute you know, door to balloon. Um, for strokes, you know, CT within 20 minutes, um, you, and don't even, you know, not even mention thrombolysis uh, with the, that level of research and data. Um, you look at sepsis, and we have all these metrics where we say, you know, that you've got a problem, let's get you as quickly and efficiently as possible to the person that can help resolve that problem, uh, even if it's something like an appendicitis, a surgery. I mean, if we said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to diagnose, this, diagnose your appendicitis in the emergency department, and we've contacted the surgeon, but we can't get you to surgery for at least 12 and a half days, um, you know, it's, it's completely different where we have something that Mtala uh, considers an unstable medical condition with SI and HI, and yet we don't treat it with the same urgency that we treat other diagnoses, maybe because of funding, maybe because it's not, you know, sexy like a... Uh, like a stroke team and some sort of TPA. Um, but, you know, it is something that, unfortunately, it's a ball that we are being asked to hold, just like borders uh, throughout the rest of the hospital, uh, basically the purge valve of the system to say, we don't have a solution, we're not really working towards a solution, and so you are our solution. And, you know, that's a hard thing for our emergency physicians because not only does that contribute to uh, the burnout and moral injury, but as you mentioned, that potential threat, uh, that potential threat and worse outcome with our patients. And as optimistic as you are, it's worse than that. <laughs> the surgery works great for appendicitis. PCI is great for heart attacks. There's little to no evidence at all that involuntarily commitment, involuntarily committing a person for drug and alcohol abuse, for suicidal or homicidal ideation helps. And there's some evidence that it harms. And so we're, we're spending all this effort taking on all this risk without evidence that, that we're helping. We take a more rational approach to it with chest pain. And in chest pain, um, you know, ASEP understands and has put out guidelines, and most physicians understand that. If you work up every chest pain, no matter how no matter how trivial, you will end up harming more than you'll help. Some of those people will have false positive stress tests. Some will have false positive casts. Some will have stents placed that dissect their arteries and kill them. And so we have said, as rational scientists, if your risk is less than 2%, don't do an emergent workup. But we don't think, we don't blink an eye at taking a person who has some, you know, casual thoughts of, of suicidality when we already know that their risk is, is less than 1% and say, I'm taking you against your will and holding you in this hospital for days and days and days. No trial, no judge, but we're doing it because your risk is not zero. Um, and, and, and we force them to do it anyway. And we are forced to by our legal system and because of the 
humiliation which is inflicted upon us by the press when um, when a when a patient is one of those less than one percent that does go on to kill themselves. So let's look at uh, one kind of closing. Put a put a bow on it. You know, any closing thoughts that you have. Um, on top of that, uh, where can folks uh, find the article, get a- access uh, to the article? Um, it was one that I got a prep and actually sent to me a few times. Um, and then uh, any contact information for you? Um, so so um, certainly. So um, my when I think about when I think about emergency department violence, the management of the violence itself is a routine, a physical and chemical combination that any any good scientist and physician can understand. The challenge comes and the reward comes from preventing the violence to initiate at all. Focusing on de-escalation, uh, de-escalation techniques for the nurses and physicians, sort of de-escalation um, techniques for the police and paramedics. And then also asking the question, if what the patient wants is to leave, and that's why they are violent, must I truly keep them there against their will? And I would love to work with legislators and with the legal system to say, don't force us to do this because sometimes we're doing more harm than good um, out of fear that their mental health will deteriorate when they leave. The, uh, the article itself, um, the article is in Emergency Medicine News um, from the last couple of months. And um, my, uh, my, my contact is uh, graham.snyder at wepa.org, W-E-P-P-A dot O-R-G. Fantastic conversation. I do encourage everybody to read that. And it's clearly something that with ED violence and with our patients, um, rethinking the way we do it, um, because sometimes less is more. And, um, you know, just those dealing with those that, um, and we I think many of us have these patients that come in quite often, many times refer to them as pseudocidal, that they have thoughts, a lot of times it's just agitation, no intention, and we know it. And, you know, we get, get to where we say, listen, are you really, do you have any plan, making sure everything's good and stable and nothing else going on, and then letting them go, uh, because that sometimes is the best, getting the resources they need as an outpatient. So there's a lot of things that we as a profession need to reevaluate uh, how we address this and then you know what do we do with these patients and how do we get the best outcomes because you know unfortunately as you mentioned you know that the research and data may not be there that says what is the best uh, exact best plan that's going to get us the best outcomes even with that small potential risk. Unfortunately this is one where uh, clearly the the acceptance rate of failure is is zero, if not just barely above zero um, for us. And if not, it, it, as you mentioned, you get raked across the coals and, and scores of lawyers ready to come after you. As for me, you can contact me at rstantatasep.org, rstantatasep.org, at Everyday Med on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASEP Frontline.
If you're not on the front lines, you're on the sidelines.